It's TechBiter Worldwide, this week with no theme music. It's a long story, and I'll tell you about it next week. For now, let's just get on with it. This is podcast number 324 for the 6th of January, 2013. This week, how you can have a sassy new year if you want one. A look at the upcoming version of Microsoft Word. It's a new year, but TechBiter looks about the same on the surface. In short circuits, if you think antivirus software makes you safe, you have another think coming. Google chairman Eric Schmidt heads for North Korea. And when Amazon catches a cold, Netflix sneezes. Yes, you can have a sassy new year. This might be the year for SAS. In fact, SAS is an acronym for Software as a Service. There's no shortage of options, and some of them might be sufficiently robust to serve your needs. The trouble with the SAS software suites is that they seem to offer about as much functionality as spreadsheets and word processors had in around 1994 under Windows 3.1. In other words, if you find to be indispensable some of the advanced features of Microsoft Word or Excel, most of the online suites won't prove satisfying. The primary players in the online suite game are Google with Google Docs and Zoho with Zoho Collaboration, Business, and Productivity Application. Microsoft is also present with its Microsoft Web Apps and Microsoft Office 365, and there are others, some with specialized offerings and some with basic offerings that don't go much beyond managed email for small businesses. The also-rans include some big names, though. GoDaddy, for example, provides email services in addition to being a domain registrar, a website host, and a provider of SSL security certificates. Rackspace is a well-known and relatively expensive source of website hosting that offers Microsoft-hosted Exchange and several powerful options for handling email. IBM is a small player with its renamed IBM Lotus Live, now called the IBM Smart Cloud for Social Business. It includes email, collaboration, and web conferencing. Organizations such as USANet, ShareWeb, Intermedia, Aptics, and Navisuite offer specialized solutions that are aimed generally at the larger end of the small business market. For the small business users and some home users, the market is essentially limited to the big three in little applications, Google, Zoho, and Microsoft. Probably the best known is Google Docs. Mention an online word processor or an online spreadsheet, and most people probably think of Google Docs because Google was the first to inhabit the market segment. Google's Chrome-based computers are designed to work with Google's online applications. Google's online suite is more basic than Zoho's, and the individual application's capabilities are limited. Still, if your budget is $0, and you want to make your documents available via the Internet, and you have no need for programs with a lot of features, Google Docs would be a good choice. By features, I mean those beyond the basics. Take the word processor as an example. You have the basic editing commands. Find and replace, cut, copy, paste, undo, and redo. Basic styles, headings, and such are provided. You can't add your own, though. You can at least modify existing styles to match your preferences. More advanced features aren't supported. And if you've become accustomed to the power user features that are available from Office Suites, such as those from Microsoft or Corel WordPerfect, 
you could be forgiven for feeling that you're being left out in the cold. And then there's Zoho, the company that seems to have a little trouble trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. Zoho's offerings are astonishingly wide, and that is both a positive because you have a lot of choices, and it's a negative because you're likely to be overwhelmed by all those choices. Chat, meeting, docs, projects, discussions, wiki, mail, assist, marketplace, books, people, bug, tracker, recruit, campaigns, reports, creator, site 24 by 7, CRM, sites, invoice, support, calendar, writer, notebook, show, sheet, and Zoho Office for Microsoft SharePoint. Most of the features can be used in a very limited way for free, but have paid versions that offer the ability to do more. A few of the features are offered only on a paid basis or are worthwhile only in the paid version. If you're the owner of a small business and you're put off by the thought of paying several thousand dollars for a billing program or customer relations applications or website monitoring or invoicing or project management, well, you probably owe it to yourself to at least take a look at what Zoho has to offer. Then there's that 300-pound canary sitting over in the corner. Surprisingly, it might be Microsoft that's positioned to take advantage of SaaS. If you upgrade to Office 2013 on a computer that runs Windows 7 or Windows 8, you'll be offered an option to create an Office Web Apps account that will allow you to read, edit, and share Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and OneNote documents via Microsoft's SkyDrive. The basic account is free. The key to Office Web Apps is that you can make quick, basic edits in a web browser. But if you need to make more complex changes or work with the advanced features, you can then open the documents directly in the appropriate Office program. Either way, the changes you make are updated via SkyDrive to all computers that are synchronized with the SkyDrive account. I have made extensive use of SkyDrive with Microsoft's indispensable OneNote application because I have immediate access to notes and reminders whether I'm using a desktop system, a notebook, a netbook, or a tablet. The advantages of access such as this are obvious within seconds. Instead of having to send myself an email with a reminder to update something in OneNote when I get home or get to the office or have the notebook in my hand, I just update it on the spot, and I know that the change will appear the next time I open OneNote on any computer. The same kind of functionality works with other Office applications, but I haven't yet started making extensive use of it for Word, Excel, or PowerPoint. These files are generally larger, which means that they would take longer to load even on a fast internet connection. Additionally, it's pretty rare for me to find that I need my automotive expense spreadsheet when I'm anywhere but sitting in front of the desktop computer. Business owners should take a look at Microsoft's Office 365. It's not free, but you may find that it offers reasonably priced access to capabilities that you'd like your employees to have. The basic program at $4 a month per person includes integration with Outlook for web-based access to email, calendars, and contacts. This works with both Windows computers and Macs, but only if you have Office 2007 or later. You also get email that uses your company's own domain name, shared calendars, configurable anti-spam filtering, active directory synchronization, 25 gigabyte user mailboxes, and the ability to send attachments up to 25 megabytes. Other programs at $6, $8, and $20 per month per user 
offer extra features. The $20 plan provides the full desktop version of Office Professional Plus, and each licensee can install the desktop version on five computers. That would be enough licenses to cover the Office desktop, a notebook, a home desktop computer, and one other device, maybe a netbook or a tablet. If you have no budget for software, and you don't need every document to be available immediately via the Internet, my recommendation would have to be to use LibreOffice. It's a close match for Microsoft's and Corel WordPerfect's suites. If you need the documents to be available via the Internet, there are synchronizing applications that can provide that capability. But consider the cost of Microsoft Office. You can find copies of the home and student version of Office 2007 for less than $100. The 2010 version can be found easily for about $120, and keep in mind that these are licensed for installation on up to three computers. Office 2013 should be on store shelves around mid-year. Prices aren't available yet, but they're likely to be similar to the current prices. Oh, and speaking of Microsoft Office, I thought we'd take a look this week at Microsoft Word 2013. The words that describe the Office 2013 collection for me are these, faster and smoother. The applications generally load faster than their predecessors, and the on-screen response to the keyboard is interesting. I haven't found a good way of describing it yet, but characters seem to just flow onto the screen rather than pop on. It's a very subtle difference, but I've seen some variant of the effect in all of the applications. It seems that Microsoft has moved beyond making an application that just works to making an application that works and is pleasing to watch. In fact, there's a lot to be happy about in this version. Be happy if you have Windows 7 or Windows 8, because Office 2013 will not run on other platforms. Just as Apple pulled the plug on support for earlier operating systems, Microsoft has concluded, and I think rightly so, that it no longer makes sense to support all those legacy operating systems. Doing so simply cripples the application in the newer operating systems. The file menu, or the backstage view, now has an account section, which is where you go to set up your online storage, change your username, your account photo, check to see which applications are included in the suite, and whether you have activated them or not. This is also where you go to connect to a SkyDrive account and set up links to services such as Facebook, Flickr, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and online file storage and sharing services. The info selection displays everything Word knows about the current document. How big it is, how many pages and words it contains, how many minutes you've spent editing it, who wrote it, who last modified it, when it was created, when it was last modified, when it was printed, if it was, and several bits of metadata such as titles, tags, comments, status, categories, and more. This is also the place that you go to check all private comments to make sure that they've been removed before you provide the document to somebody else. You could also add custom XML data here and even retrieve previous versions of the file. The file open dialog looks nothing like any previous version. Now you'll see two columns. The left-hand column shows places such as recent documents, SkyDrive, computer, and add a place. The right column shows all the documents that are in the current selection from the left column. No pins are visible, so you might think that Microsoft has eliminated pinning, but 
Not so. Just hover the mouse over any file and a pin will appear. You can also pin folders. For example, most of my Word documents are stored in a folder on the Word directory on the D drive, so I've pinned that. But I also store some files for TechBiter in a websites directory, which also happens to be on the D drive, so I've pinned that folder too. Under Add a Place, you can define additional SkyDrive locations or connect to Office 365 via SharePoint. You want to print that? Well, the print dialog isn't significantly different from what we've had in the 2010 version, but it's a reminder of just how much the interface has changed over the years. Select a printer, either local, remote, or virtual, and then specify the settings. The clarity of the presentation and the preview also aren't new, but they allow you to see what you're going to print before you send it off to the printer. Word isn't InDesign. In fact, it's not even Microsoft Publisher. But it can do a surprisingly good job of wrapping text around images, and when you drag an image to place it, it can also show you where it's aligned and how. Word even allows you to add video to a document now. Granted, this video won't prove to be very useful for somebody who prints the document, but if your users view the document on screen, the video will be available. For nearly 20 years, I've been telling people not to edit PDF documents. Adobe began working on the PDF format, which they originally called Camelot, back in 1991. It was released in 1993. PDFs have provided a way to share highly formatted documents, such as those created by InDesign or Word, with people who don't have InDesign or Word. It's also used to send documents to commercial presses for printing. Early versions were not editable. Adobe Acrobat 11 now makes it possible for text to move up and down when a PDF document is edited, but the functions are limited. Documents are broken up into text blocks, and the text will reflow only within a given text block. A block is typically a paragraph, sometimes less. But with Word, you can now open a PDF document and edit it there. During the conversion, you'll see a warning that says, Word will now convert your PDF to an editable Word document. This may take a while. The resulting Word document will be optimized to allow you to edit the text, so it might not look exactly like the original PDF, especially if the original file contained a lot of graphics. That's the warning. And indeed, if the document is complex, the result will not be good. You'll see a couple of examples on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One is a highly formatted document that didn't convert very well at all. Uh, the text is indeed editable, but you certainly wouldn't want to then try to do anything with that document. You could pull text out of it and use it somewhere else, but you certainly wouldn't use the converted document in any way. But if the document contains primarily text, the result will be much better, and adding text or deleting text will cause the text below to move up or down, just like it should. In a previous program sometime last year, I described how much I like modifications to track changes. Instead of the much-despised track change bubbles, Word 2013 offers two views, one that places change bars in the margin and omits any indication of what changes were made, and another that omits the change bars and shows every insertion and deletion in a separate pane that can be shown to the left of the document or below it. In addition to improving track changes, Microsoft has also improved the comment function 
so that replies can be included within the original comment. These changes are significant enhancements to the collaboration process. So you're probably wondering just how well Office 2013 works with previous versions. Well, that's a fair question. You can convert any document created in a previous version of Word to Word 2013 format, and the older program will still be able to read it if the older version of Word has the appropriate conversion software available. It's free for Microsoft, but you do have to download it and install it. But any of the new features you use in a document will not be visible in the older program. So the best option is to convert to the new format, but if you need to return the document to someone who's still running the older version, the safer option will be to run in one of the compatibility modes. And at this point, I have to offer this confession as a former Microsoft Word hater. I hated Microsoft Word. In 1983, a man from Satellite Software International stopped by my office. He wanted to show me a new word processor, and I had just started to become interested in personal computers. Until then, I had used Word 11 on a Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-11 mini-computer. The program he wanted to show me was called WordPerfect, and it had features that were similar to what Word 11 offered. I liked it immediately. Later that year, when I was finally exposed to WordStar, the program that everybody seemed to be so excited about, I considered it to be ghastly. I felt the same about Microsoft Word when it was released. In the DOS world, there was never any word processor better than WordPerfect 5.1, which was released in 1989. But the WordPerfect Corporation decided to develop, or perhaps was tricked into developing, for OS 2. Microsoft's first Windows version of Word had been released in 1995, but was still far inferior to WordPerfect. Unfortunately, though, WordPerfect didn't release a workable version for Windows until 1997, two years later. And by then, the company was squandering its resources on developing for Unix, Linux, and Java. Microsoft, meanwhile, had optimized Word for Windows 95 and later Windows 98. It was around that time that I began using Word grudgingly. It still didn't have, and never would have, the reveal codes function that made Word Perfect such a standout. By the time Microsoft released Word 2003, there was really no alternative, and since then the application has continued to improve. So, with Word 2013, I'm finally sold. Here it is, 2013, New Year, New Tech Biter. Normally, the TechBiter redesign begins in November or December. This year, though, I began a couple of days prior to Memorial Day because I wanted to keep the overall appearance about the same. Eh, you're probably shaking your head at that one. Okay, you want to keep the same look, but you're going to start earlier. Why? Well, I've been sneaking up on HTML5 and CSS3 since about 2010, but the 2012 design still had too much legacy code. For 2013, I wanted to eliminate all, or at least most, of the legacy materials and move to code standards that would serve for many years. The first thing you may notice if you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website is that the pages no longer have names ending in HTML. They now end with PHP. The page width hasn't changed this year. I expanded the width to 1,000 pixels a year or two back, and anything wider than that would be too wide for some monitors, and it would also result in lines of text that honestly would be uncomfortable to read. When you click an image to expand it, the larger view also remains at 1,000 pixels, 
Prior to 2012, it was 800 pixels. There's been a change, though, in how the enlarged image is presented. The larger image will be centered on the screen, and the appearance is animated. Instead of clicking to dismiss the larger image, you now press the Escape key, but there's also an icon in the lower right corner of each image that you can click to return to the main article. Overall, more remains the same than changes this year, unless you look at the code in the background. In short circuits, if you think antivirus software makes you safe, you've got another think coming. An article by Nicole Perlroth in the New York Times this week made it clear that despite huge expenditures on protective applications, computer users aren't protected very well against new viruses, and despite their advertising campaigns, antivirus publishers actually know this. The full New York Times article is well worth the time you'll spend reading it, and there's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In the good old days, computer viruses were generally created by people who simply wanted to prove that they could do it. Despite the vandals who created viruses that deleted or scrambled files, most viruses caused no intentional harm. Then, thieves discovered that they could make money on viruses that could take over computers or hold the data on computers hostage. Perlroth's article points out that in 2000, fewer than one million strains of malware existed, and most of those had been made by amateurs. A decade later, the number was 49 million new strains. The article cites a study by data security firm Imperva that analyzed 82 new computer viruses and put them up against more than 40 antivirus products made by top companies such as Microsoft, Symantec, McAfee, and Kaspersky Lab. They found that the initial detection rate was less than 5%. Now, to some extent, that's expected. A new threat must be seen and analyzed before antivirus applications can be programmed to protect against it. But Imperva noted that the antivirus publishers needed nearly a month to update their applications, and during that time, computers were not protected against any new threats. I did find that my decision to use the free version of Avast was validated by the study. Avast and MCSoft are the applications with the best records for stopping new threats. How much do we spend on these applications, you might be wondering? Business and personal users shelled out more than $7 billion in 2011. The article notes that publishers downplay or eliminate any mention of antivirus these days, and they're attempting to develop new protective technologies. If you're interested in where that part of the industry is going, Perlroth's article will at least give you a head start. The Associated Press is reporting that Eric Schmidt, Google's executive chairman, will be visiting one of the most closed nations on Earth, North Korea. The secretive country is familiar with at least one Google property, though. The state has used YouTube to spread its propaganda. Now, note that the word propaganda, that term, is essentially neutral, at least in my world, because all countries, all companies, all organizations, and a lot of people use propaganda to spread their particular views. Beyond using the Internet to spread propaganda, North Korea doesn't have much use for the worldwide network of networks. In fact, it has policies that are far more restrictive than those found even in Iran. But North Korea's new leader, Kim Jong-un, says that a new industrial revolution is underway. Unlike his father and grandfather, Kim Jong-un seems to be betting on science and technology to improve living conditions. 
He has, for example, called for placing computers in every school and for modernizing factories. But freedom of information has never exactly been a priority in North Korea. There is an internal network, but obtaining access to the Internet isn't an easy task. North Korea has no diplomatic relations with the United States, there is a ban on the import of North Korean goods, and trade with the country is prohibited. Schmidt is going along with someone who is familiar with and to North Korea's government, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. He's been to North Korea several times and has twice negotiated the release of Americans held in North Korea. The visit is billed as a humanitarian mission, and although no date has been set, it could happen by the end of January, according to the Associated Press article. Just as people were settling in on Christmas Eve to watch a movie or two using the streaming service from Netflix, something happened. And that something was nothing. No movies. So Amazon apologized. You may be wondering why Amazon apologized for a Netflix problem. Well, it's because Netflix uses Amazon's network to distribute its streaming video. So it wasn't just Netflix that was affected, but because the problem occurred on Christmas Eve and most companies were closed, or at least people weren't particularly interested in visiting websites to buy anything on Christmas Eve, the most visible part of the problem was with Netflix. Amazon has posted a message on its website to address the problem. We want to apologize, the message says. We know how critical our services are to our customers' businesses, and we know this disruption came at an inopportune time for some of our customers. The problem began at a data center in the east and affected what Amazon calls its elastic load balancing service. The outage wasn't widespread, but it was a relatively long outage for those who were affected. One worthwhile takeaway for me is this. If you plan to run your business in the cloud, you'd be very well served to have some backup plans down here on the ground. And that's it for the first week of January 2013. Check back next week. Hope to have some music back for you.